Turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 24. Jeremiah chapter 24. The title of today's sermon is The Future of the Figs. The Future of the Figs. Jeremiah chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. The Lord showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of the Lord. After that, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe. And the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten, they were so bad. Then said the Lord unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Again the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. And I will give them an heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return unto me with their whole heart. And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Surely thus saith the Lord, So will I give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt, and I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach, and a proverb, a taunt, and a curse, in all places whither I shall drive them. And I will send the sword the famine, and the pestilence among them, till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. Today we'll be looking at this text, Jeremiah chapter 24, and considering four main points. We'll go through the text in four sections and explain it, and then we'll move on to four points of application from this chapter. So on your outlines, Roman numeral number one is captivity due to sin. Captivity due to sin. Now, Jeremiah chapter 24 consists of a vision presented and an explanation of that vision. But the context for the whole chapter and for the whole book of Jeremiah is set here in verse 1. So let me briefly give the historical context for what's going on here. And we'll do that by looking at the three people or people groups in verse 1. So first you see in the text in verse 1, there's Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Now he's a king of a kingdom uh, that lays to the east of Judah, and he's leading his forces against the people of Judah. In fact, he's leading his forces against many nations, uh, building his empire. And he's already taken some captives out of, of, the, of Judah. If you look at your timeline there, in 604, 604, 605, he took some young men captive, including Daniel. And now, uh, in our text, he's come and taken more people captive from the land. And he's about to do much worse. This king is about to come and besiege the city, destroy homes, kill people, uh, burn down houses, burn down uh, the king's house, uh, devastate the city. 
And so when we read here that this king has come against the people of Judah, it's not a pleasant thing, to say the least. And God calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant elsewhere in Scripture. And so God uses this pagan king to judge the nation of Judah. And so we have to ask ourselves, why is Judah being judged? In Jeremiah 19, if you just want to jot these down in your notes, I'll be given several references here. But in Jeremiah 19, verses 3 through 5, we get a summary of the fact that God is bringing judgment and why he is doing so. And God sends Jeremiah to tell the leaders of Judah. And this is what the word of God says in Jeremiah 19, verse 3. And say, Hear ye the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, the which whosoever heareth his ears shall tingle, because they have forsaken me, and have estranged this place, and have burned incense in it unto other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, nor the kings of Judah, and have filled this place with the blood of innocence. And so God is judging the nation because of their sin. The people have committed idolatry. And idolatry is worshiping a false god. It's worshiping a god that is not the true god, and it's setting up another god as a source of law and morality in your nation. And when that happens, wickedness, immorality, and injustice always follow. And so we see in verse 4, the people of Judah had filled their land with innocent blood. They had shed innocent blood as a nation because they had committed idolatry and were worshiping another god. Jeremiah chapter 5 gives another list of why God is bringing this judgment. I'll just run through these. They do not execute justice, Jeremiah 5.1. They swear falsely, 5.2. They refuse to receive correction, 5.3. They have forsaken God and served and sworn by false gods, as I said, 5.7. They have committed adultery, 5.7. They have a rebellious heart, 5.23. They do not fear God, 5.24. And they do not defend the needy, 528. And so God brings this pagan king against them because of their sins. Now consider Jeconiah. In verse 1 of our text of 24, King Jeconiah. Now God allows this king to be taken captive to Babylon. And in fact, throughout Jeremiah's preaching, he has been urging them to submit to God's word and go to Babylon despite the incredible pain of leaving behind family and friends and homes and their, very, their own country. In Jeremiah chapter 21, in verse 8, Jeremiah is told to say this to the people. And unto this people thou shalt say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I have set before you the way of life and the way of death. He that abideth in this city shall die by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. But he that goeth out and falleth to the Chaldeans that besiege you, he shall live. And his, face shall be unto, his life shall be unto him for a prey. For I have set my face against this city for evil, and not for good, saith the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. So the Lord saying, the king of Babylon is coming to destroy your city. Go out and surrender to him, and save yourself some of the destruction that you would otherwise face. And so in the midst of this judgment for sin, and no doubt King Jeconiah was also guilty of sin, as everyone else was. In 2 Chronicles 36.9, it says that Jeconiah did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And yet God provides a way for a group of people to not receive the full brunt of his wrath against the land. 
And so you have a group that goes out and surrenders to the, to the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, same group. And they leave behind their homes and friends and land. So keep that in mind. And the third group, to wrap up the historical context here, is a group of people mentioned in verse 1. And it's the princes of Judah and the carpenters and the smiths. So put yourself now in the shoes of the people living in Judah. A foreign, ruthless king is coming against your land. He's already taken some of your best young men, men like Daniel and his friends. And now he's come again and is taking the king captive along now with princes, carpenters, and smiths. These are the cunning men. These are the, the craftsmen, the scientists, if you will, of the society. Nebuchadnezzar is taking them taking the resources from the kingdom of Judah in order to profit his own land. He's taking the intellectual resources of Judah. And if you're a person that's been living in the land of Judah and you've been listening to Jeremiah, you know that homes will be burnt down. People will lay dead in the streets. Some will resort to cannibalism. Jeremiah 19.9. This is a time of deep sadness and distress for the nation. And it's easy for us to read this and hear about them being taken captive and not feel the weight of it. And not really feel what's going on with these people. This was a horrible time for the people of Judah. And you read in Jeremiah, he's broken over this. In chapter 8, we read about how broken Jeremiah is because of this. He says in verse 21, I am sore vexed for the hurt of the daughter of my people. I am heavy, and astonishment hath taken me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Jeremiah is broken because of what is going on. It is painful and devastating. It's not a fun time. It's a time of death, judgment, and seeming chaos. And so when we read these words in verse 1, ponder the depth of the pain of the people. They've been rescued generations ago from the land of Egypt, from the land of slavery. God brought them into the land. He said he would make them the head and not the tail if they would keep his covenant and keep his word. And surely now they felt like their world was falling apart. The promised land, God's people, being destroyed and taken to serve the king of Babylon. Their future looks horrible. And so that's the context. God brought the judgment. And as we'll see, God often uses nations to judge other nations. So now I'll move on to Roman numeral number two. The two baskets of figs. And this is going to set the stage for the vision. Look at verses two and three. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe. And the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then said the Lord unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs very good, and the evil very evil. They cannot be eaten. They are so evil. So what's the vision here presented to Jeremiah? It's a vision of two opposites, two extremes. You have a basket of good figs, succulent, luxurious, delicious figs, and a basket of rotten, vile, stinking figs. Figs that you wouldn't want to touch, let alone sink your teeth into. They're useless. And so as we'll see, that's the important thing to, to keep in mind about this vision. The question is, how would you use these figs? What would you do if you got home one day from work and you were going through your fridge and you found a bowl in the back of your refrigerator that you had forgotten was there? And now this thing is covered with mold. It's, it's so bad that you don't even know what it is anymore. That's how bad it is. Now, are you going to take that thing out and try and clean it up and eat it? No, you're going to throw that away. You probably want to get it out of your house, not just out of your fridge. Now, imagine 
you come home and there's a, a fresh basket of fruit on your table that someone gave to you. You wouldn't throw that away. You wouldn't cast that out. You'd probably put it right in the center of your table and you would enjoy both the taste of that fruit and the aesthetic beauty of looking at the fruit. And so that's the contrast here. You have a basket of useful figs, figs that are, are, are as they are meant to be and as figs should be used, and a basket of nasty, bad, rotting figs that should be thrown away. So as you go through this text, think about how would you use those two baskets of figs. And now God's going to explain the purpose of this vision. As we go to Roman numeral number three, God's dealing with the good figs. In verses four through seven, we see how God will deal with this group of people that he uses the good figs to represent. Verse 4 says, Again the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up, and I will give them in heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. Now we really get into the heart of this chapter. The first few verses set the stage for us, telling us what's going on and presenting us with these two groups. So you have the first group here. This is the group that the good figs represent. And the key text to this whole chapter is in verse 5. We see what the relationship is between the vision and between this group of people that's taken captive. In verse 5 it says, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah. And so you have the image of the figs before you. One is good and useful and profitable. It is brought into the temple to be used. The other is bad and of no use. And what God is saying is, As I would regard the basket of good figs, so will I regard these people who are being taken into captivity. These people whom I have sent into captivity, yes, because of sin, yes, because my judgment has fallen upon this land, and yet I'm going to send them away for their good. God is saying I'm going to deal with these people as if they are pristine, very good figs. Now this is unconditional love, brothers and sisters. It's the unconditional love of God. It's God taking a group of people who have sinned and are justly taken into captivity. And yet he chooses to love them and bless them. And he chooses to regard or acknowledge them as good. And just so we don't lose sight of this, elsewhere in scripture, we're told why it is that God loves one group of people and not another. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verse 7, It says, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. I chose you because I loved you. Why did you love me? I loved you because I loved you. That's unconditional love. And more specifically, it's what we call unconditional election. If you're a Christian today... The root cause of that, when you get down to the very bottom, is not because you you were better than your neighbor, you made a better decision than them, but simply because God in his free and sovereign mercy chose to love you. He chose to look upon you as a good fig. 
And that is why these people here in our text will receive this incredible promise in verses 6 and 7. Because in verse 5, we're told God says, I'm choosing to look upon you as a good fig. Matthew Poole, the Puritan, he said, These figs seem not to be called good or bad figs with respect to their manners or quality, but in respect to what God intended to do to them. So they are deemed good or bad based on what God intends to do to them. And so God says, I'll know this group that was carried captive to be good. Just as I would regard good figs, that's how I'll look upon them. And so he gives now a twofold promise to this group of figs based on his love towards them. And verse 6, in the first line of verse 6 says, For I will set mine eyes upon them for good. It's really building off of verse 5. Everything that follows now is because God is setting his eyes upon them for good. And everything good that comes to pass is based off of that love of God. True, lasting blessing will only come to you if God has set his eyes upon you for good. It's the same today. And so the first part of this promise, look at verse 6, is that he will bring them back into the land. It says, I will bring them again to this land and will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them. In Jeremiah chapter 25, we learn that the promise here is that God will bring them back to the land, but it will take 70 years. That's chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. So God promises to bring them back to the land that they are leaving and seeing homes being burnt down and cannibalism and destruction behind them, as it were, and the temple being pillaged. And it's devastating, and it's hard for us to relate, perhaps, to the godly Jew during this time. His world is quite literally falling apart. And so in the midst of that, God gives this wonderful promise that he will bring them back to their land, the land that they love. But they have to wait 70 years for it. So keep that in mind. We will revisit that. And then in verse 7, we see the second aspect of the promise here. And this promise is magnificent. It goes to a greater level than the first promise. God is saying, not only am I going to bless you by bringing you back, but I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to give you a heart to know me. Yes, you were cast out because of your unfaithfulness and sin, but I'm going to choose to look upon you in love and change that heart and fix the problem. And we see here that this is a new covenant promise. You see, the problem with the old covenant was not with God. It was not with God's law. It was with man and his heart. And God had promised the people, if you obey and keep this covenant, I will bless you and keep you in this land and make you the head and not the tail. But if you disobey, I will cast you out among the nations. And that's exactly what happened. And yet God in his mercy and grace gives them this new covenant promise. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart that you would know me, that I am the Lord, that you will be my people, that you will want to obey and honor me because I'll change your heart. They'll be given the power with a new heart and his spirit to keep God's law. And they'll return unto him with their hearts that God has given them. And in Jeremiah 31, 33, this, this new covenant promise is explained further when it says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And this is repeated in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, making it clear that this is referring to the new covenant instituted by Christ when he shed his blood for his church. 
So we get the two parts of the promise here that God is making to these people. Verse 6, I promise to bring you back into the land. You have to wait 70 years for it, though. And now the second half of the promise, verse 7, it's the promise of the new covenant. It's the promise that will be fulfilled by the Messiah, by the Christ. And when Jesus came into the world, he came heralding the good news of the kingdom. And from the beginning of the Bible, God had promised that he would set right that which had been made wrong due to sin. And God promised Abraham that all the families of the earth shall be blessed through Christ, Genesis 12, 3. And that the seed of Christ, the church, will be as the dust of the earth, Genesis 13, 16. And so this is the promise that the people get. But they have to wait for this too, because it will be 500 years before the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a magnificent promise, though. It's, it's the new covenant promise. You've broken the old covenant, not because my law was faulty, but because of your heart. In the new covenant, I'll write my law on your heart, and I'll bless the world through Christ. And so note how God deals with these people. He looks upon them as good and sets his eyes on them for good. And then what does that translate into? It translates into great and precious promises. But the nature of those promises is important. He says, I promise you I'm going to love you and bless you, but you have to wait for it. And so God deals with these people out of his love and mercy, but it's on his own terms and his own timetable. And so he regards them as good and gives them precious promises. Now look at Roman numeral number four on your outline. God's dealing with the bad figs, verses 8 through 10. So now the Lord is telling Jeremiah how he is going to deal with this other group of people. As I already read in verses 8 and 10, we're reminded that this group has likewise sinned and rejected God. And now some of them stay in the land and don't surrender to the Babylonians. Some of them flee to Egypt and try to avoid the judgment that God said is coming upon them. But there is no place where you can run from God's judgment. I won't turn there, but in Jeremiah chapter 39, you'll see what happens to these people. You'll see that the king comes upon Zedekiah and the people and besieges the city. And it's not a pleasant thing uh, when these uh, cities were besieged. That's where undoubtedly the cannibalism happened. You have people eating each other's flesh because there's no food. And then the people try to escape that siege and they're overtaken. And it never works to run from God's judgment. Boys and girls, if you sin against your parents and you try to hide it and sweep it under the rug and don't think it'll come back, it's going to come back tenfold. You can't run from sin. You can't run from God's judgment. And that's what happens to Zedekiah. He tries to run from God. And what happens to him? It says in Jeremiah 39 that the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah. He kills his sons. He kills the nobles of Judah. And then he puts out Zedekiah's eyes. He gouges out his eyes and bounds him with chains to carry him to Babylon. And then he burns his house down and the houses of the people with fire and breaks the walls of Jerusalem. It's Jeremiah 39. So you cannot escape God's judgment by running away. And any judgment against a nation, a king, a person is a mini judgment, a picture foreshadowing the judgment to come on all men when the wicked are gathered out of Christ's kingdom at the end of the age. Matthew 13:41. You can't escape the judgment of God no matter how hard you try. But note that this judgment on God's part is not capricious. God is not eager to punish these sinners. In Jeremiah 42, the people go to Egypt, and yet God still continually implores them through Jeremiah 
to repent. God is long-suffering with the wicked. And no man will fail to enter heaven because of a lack of opportunity. The wicked refuse to repent despite the entreaties of God and his prophets, and thus they seal their condemnation. It's not because they're not given a chance. And there's strong language, of course, to use here against these people. It says there'll be a reproach, a taunt, a proverb. It's really a shameful group when you look at it. They try to run from God's judgment, but in the end it will come upon their head more than they can imagine. And so that's the text. That's, we see captivity due to sin in verse 1. We see two different groups of people represented by two baskets of figs. And we see the basket of good figs, which represents those people taken into captivity. Those whom God will treat as good based on his free grace and love in verses 4 through 7. And then we see the bad figs, which represent those who will be given over to the sword and to judgment and famine and pestilence in verses 8 through 10. And now we need to dig deeper into this text and consider the application of this. So if you flip your outline over, we'll go into uh, some points of doctrine from this text and the application of it. Number one, in the back side of your notes, is that national sin brings national hardship. And I submit to you that one of the clearest doctrines presented in the Old Testament, and especially in the book of Jeremiah, is that national sin brings national hardship. And I don't mean just Judah and Israel, I mean any nation. Because it's not the case that God just dealt with Israel in Old Testament times. God is sovereign over every nation and judges and blesses all people groups accordingly. In Jeremiah chapter 48, God says that he is sending a people into captivity because of their sin, and in the latter days he will bring them back. It sounds like he's talking about Israel, right? Or Judah, his people. He's actually talking about Moab, Jeremiah 48, 47. So God deals with all nations, and he judges and blesses them accordingly. And that promise to Moab, I believe, will be fulfilled as the kingdom of Christ spreads through the world and the nations are converted, Psalm 2.8. But we see there that he, he deals with these nations. But one of the sins that comes up again and again when it comes to God judging a nation is that of the shedding of innocent blood. In Jeremiah 5.9, it says this, God says, Shall I not visit for these things? And shall not my soul be avenged on a nation such as this? As I mentioned, idolatry always leads to wickedness, injustice, and the shedding of innocent blood. God had given his, his people his law, and yet they were not executing justice for the poor. They shed innocent blood, and national, that national sin brought the national hardship upon them. That was a result of their idolatry and forsaking God and his law. And now God, God judges all nations for sin, but it's his timing, his prerogative. In, Gen in the book of Genesis, God waited over 400 years to judge the Amorites. In Genesis 15, 16, it says, But in the fourth generation... They shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So the timing when God judges a nation and the means he uses are God's prerogative. Surely it was well over 400 years of sin occurring with the Amorites. But God visited a nation such as that. And when God visits a nation, as the people of Judah were visited, 
When he visits them in judgment, everyone suffers. To different degrees, yes, but everyone suffers. And we know how that works. In families, when the father abandons the family, everyone suffers. When the father is given to alcoholism or adultery, the whole family suffers. Even those that have not committed the sin, the sin of the father, the leader of the home, causes the whole family to suffer. And so when a nation is full of iniquity, and the leaders of that nation are committing iniquity and rebelling against God's law, when God's judgment comes, everyone suffers. And we see this in our own country. Tyrannical taxation, the usurping of land, unjust laws. These are but a few of the consequences of God's judgment upon our nation and the sin that is occurring in our nation. And so I submit to you, we must care about our nation. The future of our nation should be very important to us. Because the only way to true blessing is to honor and obey Christ. And the na- that a nation would covenant with Christ and obey him. And the scripture says that God is looking to bless a people that would covenant with him, that would bow the knee to Christ and obey his law. In 2 Chronicles 16.9, God God's word says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. Not just one nation, the whole earth. Now I've heard it said that we don't want a Christian nation, we want a moral nation. But the only way you can have a moral nation is if the nation is Christian. Because the Christian is the one whose heart has been changed. And that's the great blessing of the new covenant. The gospel changes people's hearts so that they live lives that honor Christ and obey God's law. You see, the people in Judah had the outward religion, but their hearts had been corrupted. And as a result of that, they were given to idolatry. And as a result of that, their national laws were unjust and they departed from God's law. And they shed innocent blood and they committed iniquity and God's wrath came upon them. But the new covenant promises that people's hearts would be changed. And as a result, all things would be made new. Individuals, families, churches, societies. And that they would freely love God's law from their heart. And Jesus Christ is king. And as we sang in Joy to the World, he makes the nations prove his righteousness. All nations and kings are required to serve him and obey his word, Psalm 2. That is why national sin brings national hardship. Because they're rebelling against their proper king. Now the new covenant then not only expands Christ's kingdom to all the earth, but it gives man the ability to love God's law. To honor Christ, therefore, and to uphold God's law is thus the only way for a nation to avoid God's judgment. That's why I love how Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, said that we should do our utmost to make the nations Christian nations. He says the work which the apostles had to do was to set up the Christian religion in all places. And it was honorable work. The achievements of the mighty heroes of the world were nothing to it. And then listen how Matthew Henry compares the worldly leaders trying to build a kingdom for themselves and the apostles spreading the Christian religion throughout the world. Henry says that they conquered the nations for themselves and made them miserable. The apostles conquered them for Christ and made them happy. Amen. Napoleon, a great military political leader, built an empire for himself. And he said this. This is a great quote. He says, I know men 
And I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. And the nation that submits to that king will be blessed. blessed. And the nation that rejects that king and his law will be cursed. And a nation that is sinking in the blood of innocence is not happy. The nation who serves Christ is most happy. And we must not think that we will escape the consequences of sin if we lived in the midst of a wicked nation. And so we must care about this nation. And while I am convinced that history is moving toward the blessed hope of the knowledge of God covering the earth and the kingdom of Christ triumphing over all nations, we are right now in a dark period in the history of this nation. And if God allows us to slip further into darkness and enter the dark ages here in America, it will only be for the purpose of blessing the church and fulfilling his promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth and the families of the earth will be blessed in Christ. Now, of all people, surely Jeremiah could have said, hey, listen, God's going to judge this nation. It's just the way it is. But, God, but Jeremiah was broken and mourned over the sins of his nation. His heart was shattered within him. And does it break your heart? When you look out and see this nation, a nation that has had over 400 years of Christian teaching, and people aren't even reading their Bibles in our nation, for a nation that has had over 400 years of Christian heritage, and yet we are murdering millions of babies year after year. Homosexual activity is praised. We have legal bestiality farms. Does it break your heart that this nation is ripe for the judgment of God because we have forsaken Christ and his law? Can you not hear God saying, Shall I not judge a nation such as this? Shall not my soul be avenged on a nation such as this? We must not think America will escape unless we bow the knee to Christ. Egypt didn't escape. Moab didn't escape. The Amorites didn't escape. Even Judah did not escape. Jeremiah 25, 29, For lo, I begin to bring evil on the city which is called by my name. Shall ye be utterly unpunished? Ye shall not be unpunished. For I will call for a sword upon all the inhabitants of the earth, saith the Lord of hosts. Why would it be any different than us? We have much more light than Egypt did, than Moab did, than the Amorites. Much more light than Sodom and Gomorrah. And I submit to you that we even have much more light than Old Testament Judah. Those people long to see the coming of Christ and the fulfillment of the new covenant. And so I plead with you, do not turn away from our nation. Do not give up. Call the nation to repentance. Speak out against the injustices that are occurring, the spurning of God's law. Call for a return to God's law that innocent blood would not be shed every day in our towns, that our leaders would not decree wicked decrees and unjust laws and pervert justice. Now, I was speaking the other day on a college campus uh, to someone and talking about how 50 million babies have been murdered legally in this nation since 1973. And the student said to me, does it really matter? Yes, it does matter. It matters to God and it should matter to us. Shall not God be avenged on a nation such as this? Care about this nation. The church in general must not simply give the nation into the hands of the secularists, telling them, here, 
make our laws, invite God's judgment upon us, decree wicked decrees. May the church rise up and call upon the kings and judges of the land to kiss the sun and serve Christ, as Jeremiah did in chapter 22, when he called upon the kings to execute judgment according to God's law. National sin brings national hardship. And so we must not turn our back on our nation, but call them to repentance and wholehearted obedience to Christ and his law. Number two for application is there are only two types of people. What type are you? There's good figs and bad figs. But what is it that makes these two groups so different? It is not that one is inherently good and the other is inherently bad. For all mankind is fallen as a result of Adam's sin. There is not one group more moral than another. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The difference is God regards one group differently than the other. It's not that one group has sinned and one hasn't. It's that one group has been blessed by God, by his free grace, and he's changed their hearts, that they might be of use to him. And so I ask you today, are you a good fig or a bad fig? In passing, I would give you three brief things to consider, taken from verse 7. To consider if you're a good fig. If God has graced you, these are some of the ways you'll know it. Three things from verse 7. Number one, you will have a heart to know God. It says, I will give them a heart to know me. And so, does your heart know God intimately? Is the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just a name that rolls off your tongue. But is he the Lord you love and adore? You know him and are changed by that relationship. To know somebody is more than just a head knowledge. It's to be changed by that relationship. Has, is your life influenced by that relationship with Christ? To be in, the acquainted, to be in, in, in relationship with Christ, it is impossible to be unchanged. And so if you know him, your life will be influenced by that relationship. Number two, it says that God will be the Lord and they shall be his people. That signifies a relationship which requires obedience. A Lord and his people. Who gives the commands in that relationship? The Lord. And who follows them? The people. And so a good fig, the life will be marked by obedience. The life of the Christian is marked by obedience to their Lord. The good figs for this vision, God's people that have been changed, are good because God is working in them and they're growing in obedience to be of use to the Lord by obeying his commands. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Is your life a life of growing obedience to God's word? Number three, to consider if you are a good fig or a bad fig, the end of verse 7 says, For they shall return unto me with their whole heart. This is repentance. A turning, a changing of the mind and heart from loving sin to loving God. The good fig will be characterized by repentance. Not just a one-time event at conversion, but a life of repentance. A life of continually having your mind transformed by the word of God. A conviction of sin and a turning from sin and seeking to walk in God's word and the path of righteousness. And so those are three of the ways the good figs are of use to God. 
You see, it's about how God will use these people. And God makes them, makes them this way by his grace. Those who know God and love God and serve God and obey him and repent of sin, they are fit for use in the kingdom to spread Christ's kingdom. But the bad figs, no matter how outwardly moral they may be, are of no use for that purpose. And so what type of fig are you? And don't leave here thinking that you can remove yourself from this chapter. You are here. You're one or the other. You're one or the other. Number three in application. God's promises are multi-generational. Now I want you to imagine that America is attacked by a foreign nation and we are defeated. Now that idea might seem ludicrous, but it should not be. Because the scripture says in Isaiah 31.1, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. And does our nation as a whole seek the Lord when it comes to protection from other nations? Or do we rest our hope in our own greatness, in our own military might and technology? And if we think America is too great to suffer such loss, then we have forgotten the scripture. The posture of our leaders is not that of King Hezekiah when he said, With the king of Assyria is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Our posture is, as a nation, we're the best, we have the best military, and no one can defeat us. Instead of saying, yes, we serve Christ, and our security rests upon him. We will fight to defend our land, but we have no hope unless Christ blesses us. But our posture as a nation is that we're the best, we have the best military. That's the pride that goes before destruction. And so imagine then that America is taken captive. And imagine that you, imagine all of us, imagine you are taken captive with your family to live in Iraq as captives. And imagine God then gives you this promise that I'll bring you back. I'll bring you back to this land, this land that you love. And I do love America, and that's why I'm so broken over her sin. But God says he'll bring you back in 70 years. Now I'll probably be dead in 70 years. Some of my children might even die a natural death in 70 years if the conditions aren't ideal. And you could have three or four generations die in that time. And so think about the people in Jeremiah's day, hearing this promise that in 70 years I'll bring you back. And then remember the second part of the promise, the new covenant promise, you have to wait 500 years until the coming of the Messiah to bless them with the full new covenant promise. And on top of that, it's been 2,000 years since the coming of Christ. And there's still much work to be done to advance the kingdom. And I tend to think we have many, many generations to go. But so this promise was for 70 years. People would be dead. People would die. People would hear that promise. And they would know that they would die before it would be fulfilled. And so God's promises often apply to future generations. And brothers and sisters, that does not make them less glorious. It makes them more glorious. I would rather have the promises of God fulfilled in my children's children's generation. That they would see the gospel progress. 
greater than I have, and that they would see the kingdom spread greater than I have, and they would, and that I would lay down my life, as William Bradford said, that yea, though I should be even as a stepping stone unto them for the performing of so great a work as advancing the gospel of the kingdom of Christ, I would be most happy, so that the kingdom, so that future generations would see and behold the glory of Christ. I'd rather have that. I'd rather be a stepping stone for my children than have anything, uh, these promises fulfilled fully in my lifetime. I've had people tell me, you know, I fear for your generation, or things are getting so bad, or I fear for your children's children's generation. I know that God's judgment might come upon this land, and it has in part, but I don't fear for my children's generation, and I don't fear for their children's generation. I look forward to it, because I rest my hope in the promise of God, and though I'm dead and in the ground, my descendants will see the wicked cut off. The righteous man will fall seven times, but he'll rise again. The wicked will fall, and none will remember him. Proverbs 11.21 says, Though a hand join in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished, but the seed of the righteous shall be delivered. That's a promise you can take to the bank. And you might have to wait on it, but you can tell your children to tell their children. And on and on. The righteous will prevail and the wicked will not succeed in history. God will vindicate his church and he will bless them and plant them. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the true church of Jesus Christ. And we do have a system of theology that has permeated America built upon the idea that the church is going to be taken out of the world. That the greatest blessing for the world, the means of fulfilling God's promise, is going to leave. The church is not going anywhere. God's promises are multi-generational, and therefore children are so important. The future is so important. If there's any group of people that would have been pessimistic about the future, it was these people in Judah. The king's sons are killed. The king's eyes are plucked out. His house is burned down. The princes are killed. The people are taken away into a foreign land. There is famine, cannibalism. If there's anyone that should have been pessimistic about the future, it was these people. But what did God say to them? He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you and bring you back and give you the greatest promise this earth has ever known. The new covenant promise, the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the church, we receive those promises, a greater promise than just returning to the land. The new covenant promise, the promise of Christ that the knowledge of God shall cover the earth the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Isaiah eleven nine. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That the kingdom of heaven would start small like a mustard seed. Least of all seeds. But it would grow to be a tree. And the birds of the air would come and lodge in the branches thereof. It mattered to these people what legacy they left behind for their children. And it matters now. What are we leaving behind for our children? Now there are many in this nation that base their view on God's future off of pop culture TV theology that leaves nothing behind but a generation of Christians who believe God is not going to fulfill his promise to the church. And the only thing that is left behind by a poor theology like that is a generation of Christians who would rather wait for the rapture than take the lordship of Christ into every area of culture. And we need to ask ourselves, what Will our, what are we leaving behind for our children? Will our children be left behind with no direction and guidance based on God's promises when we die? And we need to take hold of these multi-generational promises. Of all the people on the earth, 
Christians should see the future as bright, and we should see children as a great blessing and joy to bring into this world. And if you can have children in the context of a godly marriage, you are called to be fruitful and multiply, to further the kingdom, that those promises will be passed on to the next generation. And if you can have children, you have no greater mission field than your own home. And if you can't have children, consider adopting. And if you can't have your own children and you can't adopt, support those in the church that do have children. Be creative so you can support them materially, financially, physically, spiritually. And start by helping the the families that are struggling most, perhaps single-parent homes. Don't think that just because you can't have children, for whatever reason, that you cannot be involved in the multi-generational promises of God. Don't say, oh, well, there's nothing I can do to further the future of the church. You can be a great blessing to the families in this church. This is your family. These are your children. In a Christian home that is obeying Titus 2.5 by having the mother stay at home and raise the children almost always has far less disposable income than a family where there are no children. And the enemy wants us to think, oh, well, you better be careful how many children you have. And the world wants to curtail our numbers because they know that we will have far more children than they will. And they see that the implications of that. Instead of the church buying into that mindset, we ought to be helping one another raise a massive generation of Christians to take these promises further down the road than we have. To take these promises further than we have. And so you look at that generation that came back from Babylon. And you see there the example. God's people in exile is not the paradigm that I operate on. They were sent into exile because of their sin. They came back by the grace of God to rebuild the kingdom. And we've been set free from bondage and have been tasked with building Christ's kingdom. Not living in an exiled church because of our sin. The leaders that came back, Ezra, Nehemiah, years later, men who would fight to defend their city, men who would die to rebuild those walls, those are men that were brought up by people who knew that they would die before the promise was fulfilled. And did they teach Ezra, Ezra to despair? No. Would to God that we would raise up children like that. Would to God that I would raise my children like that. That, that. that we would lay down our lives and that over our dead bodies, our children would walk on to further progress of the gospel. And I don't teach my children that we are like the exiles in captivity because of sin, but that we are like those who have been set free and are now tasked with rebuilding the walls and taking back the dominion that God has given to his people. Would to God that we would take hold of these promises and raise up a generation that is not afraid to take the lordship of Christ into every area, social, religious, family, political, and rebuild the walls. The promise is multi-generational. And so we should be looking with hope to the future generations and training our children to do the same thing with their children. Number four, temporary prosperity does not mean the wicked are on the right side of history. This whole chapter, Jeremiah 24, is a comfort to those who will repent of sin and look to God. And it's a warning to those who are hardened in their sin. It's a warning to the reprobate. And the warning is you will not prosper if you go against your king. The wicked will fall 
and they will be devastating. No doubt the ungodly in Judah were priding themselves as superior to those who were being taken captive. They were abusing the forbearance of God. And they may have seen the righteous, some righteous people suffering and being taken into captivity. And they remained in the land, seemingly safe for a time. And they probably scoffed and said, see, they're getting what they deserve. However, brothers and sisters, the righteous man can say, wait on the Lord and keep his way. And he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. Now this prosperity, at Psalm 37, now this prosperity might seem like it lasts a long time. This prosperity of the wicked may seem to drag on for us. However, 400 years of prosperity for the Amorites did not mean that God had forgotten them. As the Genevan reformers said, Though God suffer the wicked for a time, yet his vengeance falleth upon them when the measure of their wickedness is full. And in verses 8 through 10 of this chapter, we saw what was to come upon the bad figs. We saw the future of the bad figs. What comes upon the wicked is not a pretty sight, and it is just a picture of hell, the eternal judgment of God against all those who do not submit to Christ the king. And Sodom and Gomorrah are often held up as notorious examples of sinful communities. And it will be far worse for a nation that has had the light of the gospel and Christian truth for 400 years. It will be far worse for us to rebel against our proper sovereign, the Lord Jesus Christ, than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. And our president and this nation, may God save him, he has publicly sided against Christ. And he is adamant that he is on the right side of history. You may have heard the speech where he used that language. He is convinced that the forces that are driving the push for homosexuality and a slew of other abominations that go against God's law, he's convinced that these forces will continue to prevail until the earth shall be full of the knowledge of vile wickedness as the waters that cover the sea. No, Mr. President, you're on the wrong side of history. You must kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. The wicked are not on the right side of history. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And so do not be deceived by the temporary prosperity of the wicked, and do not be discouraged by it. Be encouraged by God's promise, because you know that God is working all things for the good of the good figs, for the good of the elect, for the good of the church. And to what end? That they might bless the world, that they might fulfill the Great Commission. Why did God preserve these good figs? For out of them came the Lord Jesus Christ. Out of this group came the Messiah, who was to bring forth justice to the Gentiles, and to bless all the nations, and to make all his enemies his footstool. Out of them came that small group of apostles that changed the world. And out of them came this church and our descendants that are yet to change the world. From this group, God brought the one who would make that seed more numerable than the dust of the earth. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And God is still fulfilling his promise to these good figs. He is still doing it. And we are blessed over 2,500 years later, and we're enjoying the fruits of this promise made by God to people who walked away as their houses burned down, 
who walked away from their homes, many of them never to see them again, who walked away from their land to look back from captivity, to see it burnt down with fire, who walked away knowing they would die in Babylon, and they died having the hope that they would be happy if only their children's children would come back to this land. And what will we leave to the generation 2,500 years from now? Don't be discouraged by what you see around you. The wicked will not prosper. And you will not prosper if you are rebelling against Christ. And if these people in Judah based their theology on what they saw around them, they would have had no hope for the future. But they had God's promise. And God will bless the church. He will bless the church. He is orchestrating all things for the church. The London Baptist Confession says that, as the, it's on the bottom of your notes there, as the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a more special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth of all things to the good thereof. God is working all things for the good of the church. And, and though we are already experiencing it in part, if there is a greater judgment to come upon our nation, it is only so that God would bless the church to fulfill his promises. There is now one thing that will happen to this nation or any nation that is not for the good of the church. And I don't think the people in Judah would have believed that if they just based it on what they saw. Everything was falling apart. And so God tells Jeremiah to give them this promise. Yes, though it seems like your world is falling apart, though it seems like you of all people are suffering most at this moment and are, and are experiencing the most setbacks, don't be deceived. Appearances can be deceiving. It is you that I will bless, you who are being taken away into captivity. It is you that I will use to bless the world. And that's the promise that we have as the church. You will see it. The wicked will be cut off. And I might not see it fully in my day, but I will see it through the eyes of of my children and their children. Oh, that God would bless the church, that we would not be discouraged because of the wicked in the land, which in but a moment will be no more. But that we would rise up on the wings of God's promises, knowing that no weapon formed against the church will prosper. And that we would bring up our children after us to take the banner, to take the flag from our dead, blood-stained hands when we leave to further the kingdom of Christ. And we would tell our children, wait on the Lord, keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. And so may the temporary prosperity of the wicked not discourage us, but rather spur us on to preach repentance to all nations. It's but a moment, and God's judgment will fall upon them. Join me in prayer. Oh God, I thank you for your precious promises to us. Oh, that my children and our children in this church may enjoy them better than we have. Thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ has cleansed his people and rescued us from the bondage of Satan, from our own sin, and you have defeated the enemy. And I pray that we would be faithful to rest our hope on your promises and come back and rebuild these walls and take the, the gospel of the kingdom to all the earth. And that we would see your hands in all things for the good of your church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.